in the air. Brito back at the wall. Adios, Pelota! That's the type of manager that I'd like to be, which is the same every day. They know what they're going to get. They're going to get energy. They're going to get accountability. They're going to get structure, and they're going to get support. And I'm going to bring those things to the dugout in the clubhouse regularly. It takes hard work, uh, and it takes humility, taking one step forward at a time, making one good baseball move after another. And I really feel like that's how we're going to get where we hope and intend to go. You're listening to Bags and Brisby on Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 66 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. I am Grant Brisby. I am here with Andy Baggerly, and we're joined by special guest John Shea. Now, 66, this is when normally we'd start by talking about the Gorky's Hernandez edition of the Bags and Brisby podcast, because Gorky's Hernandez is uh, famous for in 66. So when you think of Gorky Hernandez and his package of tools, who else do you think of? That's right, Willie Mays. So we're going to talk to John Shea (laughs) about Willie Mays, and he's got a new book coming out. And I'm basically going to stay out of this. I want to hear, I'm I'm a spectator, I'm I'm a listener, I'm a fan at this point. I want to hear Bags Grill Shea about this. This sounds like a lot of fun. How are you doing, John? Hey, great. Uh, Great to be on with you guys, man. This is great. Hey, uh, hey, John. Um, so uh, we're going to make this the Gorkis Hernandez edition of the podcast, but yeah. could we also make it the the future giant Yasiel Puig podcast? Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Puig is going to wear sixty six. I don't think they retired. They retired every other number in San Francisco, right? Uh, pretty much. I mean, there's not a whole lot of choices left. Uh, I think there were like three unassigned numbers remaining in spring training, and they brought in a lot of guys, but um, I don't think anyone had fifty five. And I don't think anyone had well twenty two. They're going to retire for Will Clark, and uh, and and that, and Bruce Bochy's fifteen. They 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 left that one sort of uh, honorarily mm-hmm. out of out of uh, circulation. But other than that, you got guys wearing like you know like uh, wingdings and 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 fractions, and it's uh, they're going right. to have to get creative pretty soon. Thirteen coaches. What about Bumgarner's number? They give that out. Ooh, good question. I I don't think they did. I think you're right. They ah. they left that one on the shelf. For now, but obviously, I think probably the most famous Giants retired number has to belong uh, to number twenty-four, and I know that because I'm staring at the cover of your book, which is beautiful—a beautiful cover—and the book is fantastic. Twenty-four life stories and lessons from the Say Hey Kid, and it's with Willie Mays and John Shea, forward by Bob Costas, and it's got photos in it. It's got—I love how you pace the story and you have Willie in bold and then you go through and you tell the history and so many facts and and and, and people who come in, in and out of his life uh, that are just as important and worth knowing as, as it is knowing the legend of, of Willie Mays. So I guess to start, can you tell me you know where you began with the idea for this book and, and where you began with, with your relationship with Willie? Yeah, well, thank you. I grew up here, so I saw the tail end of his career, late 60s, early 70s, and then I went to school in San Diego, spent most of the 80s there, came back to the Bay Area to cover baseball in 88. And by then he had been back with the team. The Bob Lurie ownership brought him back in 86 after he was taken off the suspended list. Thank you, Bowie Kuhn. And from there, you know, ambassador, you know, his job title was basically being Willie Mays. And, you know, over the years, uh, as you know, Andy, he was pretty much always in the clubhouse before every home game, spring training, regular season, you know, unless he went on the road for business or whatever. And it's really true to this season. We saw him 
every day uh, in spring training in the clubhouse before home games, which is is amazing when you think about it. Because how how many other ballparks have you been to where you see a Hall of Fame presence on a daily basis? And Willie is 89 now, so he still enjoys the camaraderie and and, and the banter <laughs> with these young guys and the writers, uh, as you know. But yeah. Yeah, for for whatever reason, he gained some trust in me. Yeah, I mean, who hasn't written about Willie over the years and, you know, just always went to him with questions and stories and listened mostly. I, You know, I didn't have the stories. He had the stories. You know, about maybe 15 years ago, we started talking about a book and he suggested it ought to be in classrooms. It, it's just a line that won't go away for me. You know, I want this book in classrooms. And I said, whoa, okay. And from there, uh, sort of uh, inspirationally themed throughout, you know, life lessons, not just life stories. And he, from what I gather in all the time I spent with him and talking with his real close friends, he was engaged in this journey and process throughout, which um, really was, was a cool thing for me. You know, it wasn't a bother. You know, some people write books. They say, okay, I'll, how many hours you need? You know, 10. And I think we, Willie and I did the math. We, we spent more than 100 hours together on this project. Wow. And, you know, a lot of it was just hanging out at his house and talking. I mean, one day I was over there. He's talking with Hank Aaron, and I'm pinching myself on the phone. And another day, they're announcing the results of the uh, Hall of Fame election. And I'm looking at him. I said, God, this is the greatest player who ever lived. And I'm sitting with him. And, you know, they're talking about the latest class in the stadium that Willie built, basically. So it, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, I'm in awe of the uh, uh, access that he's provided me. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I just hope that it comes across as something new because it is all new. There's nothing, there's no bibliography. There's nothing that has ever been told. We know he hit the four home runs in Milwaukee. We know he hit the walk-off against Bond to give Marichal a win in the 16th. And he made the fabulous catch in the polo grounds in game one of the series. So these are basically new stories and new background and new anecdotes, plus a lot more, you know, going into his numbers, into his relationships with certain people, uh, from Aaron to presidents to, to Mickey Mantle, on and on. So the uh, experience of a lifetime, man. Well, and, and, and to hear you talk about that just gives me goosebumps because I, I, you know, obviously I'm in the clubhouse all the time. I see Willie signing autographs for people. And, and I remember when uh, uh, the James Hirsch uh, biography came out, which was, I believe, an authorized biography, you, you would think that he would just say, okay, my story's been told, my biography is out there, but he had more to say. And like you said, you know, this book is very much 24 chapters and 24 life lessons, you know, things like, you know, set an example and, and, uh, and uh, you know, the be determined and, 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 and really just very uh, inspirational. Um, you know, life sometimes isn't fair. Uh, never give up. Um, you know, strive for excellence. All these things. And, and, and these, these moments from his life were moments uh, that intersected with his life. Um, you know, going back to, to when he was a boy first playing baseball. Um, to the Negro Leagues, to, you know, breaking into the big leagues. It's just, uh, it's all there and it's all so fresh. Even if you've read, you know, the very, very well-researched uh, biography that came out, you know, uh, uh, close to a decade ago, 
Um, I think that's that's the the remarkable thing about this to me is is he still had so much more to say and was uh, very very eager uh, to work with you to do it. So that that's that's really awesome. Yeah, and I I think you're you're right. Um, it, it it maybe it's different than other Willie books because I, and I loved you know the Einstein collection of books in the '60s when you know he wrote Willie's Time and different biographies about the man. And I was you know, really inspired by Willie's time. That's that's when he had the five chapters, and he kind of intersected the five presidencies, the presidencies uh, during Willie's time in the majors with what Willie did in those particular uh, eras. And I thought it was, you know, a magnificent book. And and um, so a lot of books after that have just kind of uh, borrowed quotes, uh, if I if I could. Um, and and storytelling and all the way up so i said well I, I don't want any of that i don't want one quote that has been in another book i don't want one um tale that you know something that willie said in 59 or 62 or 69 or 71 i i, I wanted i want what's willie what willie is saying now and it's it's unbelievable as you know andy when you talk to a, an old timer uh hall of famer you know just the the top of their craft they a lot of these guys, most of them maybe ha- have memories like the, the the recall is fascinating. They just remember this stuff from 50, 60 years ago, like it was yesterday. And you know, what did you have for breakfast yesterday? I, I don't know, but they remember what the count was uh, on uh, on an eighth inning at bat that determined a, a particular game. And luckily, you know, I have Baseball Reference and RetroSheet and all these things to double check it. And usually, especially in Willie's case, you know, he, he usually always gets it right. <laughs> yeah. You, you did hit that double with two outs in the seventh, uh, you know, to beat the Braves. But, uh, you know, that, that's, what's the fascinating thing about it is, is, uh, just new storytelling, um, over, over a lifetime and a career that's been pretty fascinating and exemplary. Now, you mentioned the uh, Charles Einstein, uh, Giants writer in the 60s, and, and that actually allows me to bring up when I first found out that the city of San Francisco didn't exactly like like they didn't embrace Willie Mays right away, that he was very much New York's legend and they were looking for their own San Francisco legend. The first time I really got that put in my head was the the book A Flag for San Francisco by Charles Einstein, the book where he wrote about the 1962 pennant. And even when the Giants were winning the pennant in 62, it just felt like, you know, this was McCovey, this was Cepeda, this is, you had all these San Francisco heroes, but Mays was on an island a little bit. Uh, how much did you get into that with him? Well, I think that's, you know, the, the whole premise of what you're talking about goes back to Joe DiMaggio, who who remains and was certainly the king of the castle, which we knew as Seal Stadium. Uh, he grew up here, DiMaggio did, and he was a teenage sensation with the Seals. Uh, he had he had hit streaks before we knew what hit streaks were with the Yankees, and that was his diamond. That was his field. This was his town. And then in 1958, uh, 26-year-old Willie Mays comes along, and not only is playing in Joe D's town, but he's playing at Joe D's ballpark and he's playing Joe D's position <laughs> center field. And all the local guys here, whether it's North beach or anywhere else across the city, 
They say, well, that, nobody's better than DiMaggio. How could he be better than the great DiMaggio? And here, here comes Willie, who, um, you know, I mean, who looked up to DiMaggio as a kid, as, as, if only because DiMaggio could do it all. And Willie's dad told him, hey, man, you got to do it all. You can't, you can't just uh, be a hitter. You just can't be a base runner. You just can't be a fielder. You got to do it all. So Willie always took that to mean, I got to finish top five in everything. He might not be, you know, the guy who has the most home runs or the highest batting average or the most steals, but he's up there in every category. And that's what he loved about DiMaggio. So one of his childhood idols he was being compared with, which is why to this day, Mays hates comparisons. He hates that Bobby Bonds was going to be the next Mays. He hates that Mike Trout is the next Mantle slash Mays. He just thinks that's so unfair and puts too much pressure on these guys because Willie felt it in San Francisco. And it wasn't just on the field. It was off the field. As you know, he had struggles landing his first house in San Francisco, liberal San Francisco, turned him away when he tried to buy a home here. And it was a national story. And eventually things went in his favor because he demanded it and pushed for it and created uh, an open window for other uh, minorities to move into certain areas in San Francisco. So yeah, 1962, you're right. Probably not until that home run in that final regular season scheduled game in the eighth inning that broke a, was it one, one tie uh, over Houston. And that kind of catapulted the giants into a best of three against the Dodgers. And they, they won that. And then they played the Yankees in the series. And maybe only then, which is several years after he arrived in 58, was he actually fully accepted because of Cepeda, because of McCovey and all these homegrown, these are, these are our guys and they're in their early twenties. And, you know, the old man Mays at 26, you know, <laughs> hard to believe that he wasn't initially accepted fully based on you're driving by 24 Willie Mays Plaza and looking at a statue and 24 palm trees. And I used to think the right field wall was 24 feet, but I think Andy proved me wrong. It's now 25 feet, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I used uh, the most expensive laser rangefinder I could find to uh, to measure that one. Yeah, that was good. So I had to edit my my book by because of, because of that story. By the way, Andy, I couldn't say it was 24 feet. I said roughly 24 feet. Well, do I get credit for being a researcher in your acknowledgments? Then, well, you are in the acknowledgments. <laughs> oh, really? Really? I, I hadn't I hadn't uh, read the acknowledgments. Come on, man! That's the most important chapter. <laughs> oh man. Oh, yeah, here we go. I see it right here. You got Alex in there. You got Carrie in there. Manolo, Hernandez Doen, Janie, Macaulay, Maria Guardado, and, of course, Chris Haft. That's great. Thanks, John. The whole crew, yeah. Yeah, pretty much everybody. I really enjoyed writing the acknowledgments because it just seemed so so many elements came together. I was so fortunate, so lucky from, you know, thanking Willie Mays's, uh, you know, former Negro League teammates to Hank Aaron you know, to Pete Rose, to to everybody across the board, 30-plus Hall of Famers. And I just felt blessed that I was able to thank these people. And by the way, anytime you ever make a phone call, just make sure you tell, it, it, like, a source that you want to call back. Just say, hey, it's for a Willie Mays book. And they usually call back in five minutes. <laughs> That's pretty good. I, I'll, I'll tell Farhan Zaidi when I want to grill him about roster moves. Yeah. Oh, no, it's about Willie Mays. Yeah, and they'll get right back to me. Um, it really is staggering, though. I think the one thing that really struck me in your previous answer um, about wanting to make sure you told people something new, wanting to make sure that you used all new material, all new quotes. I mean, that's just 
that's just a great uh, journalistic thing to reach for. Is is I mean, it's 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 a great skill to be able to uh, research and to be able to you know synthesize you know what's out there. And there's so much value in that. Um, but to be able to do all the legwork that you did that went into this book, I mean, how do, did you actually count up how many interviews you conducted, how many different people you talked to for this book? Yeah, I stopped counting at 200, and I just wow. said, okay, we're more we're more than 200. I now went back to Birmingham for a week to check out his roots, and so that meant childhood buddies, schools, libraries, um, Rickwood Field, just the the place that everyone in the country has to go to. It's the oldest existing professional ballpark, 1910, older than Wrigley, older than Fenway. That's where Satchel Paige played when he played for Birmingham 20 years before Willie did. And Willie, as a teenager in 48, 49, and 50, played for the Birmingham Black Barons. Willie played in the final Negro League World Series at Rickwood Field. So I walk into this place, and it's just, you know, a couple miles outside of downtown Birmingham, you know, in just a average neighborhood and it's it's just gorgeous it just i said holy toledo that's where willie bay stood that's where willie mays batted that's where all these legendary negro league players who never got a chance in most cases to ever play in the big leagues appeared in baseball games many decades ago so the interviews were pretty spread over phone calls and um you know from current giants to hall of fame giants to old brooklyn dodgers and yankees and you know, Pete Rose, everybody in the Hall of Fame, everybody out of the Hall of Fame. And everybody seems to have a Willie May story. And, you know, what's amazing. As I think about it, that stadium in Birmingham is is the only home stadium where you can go out to center field and stand where Willie Mays stood because you can't do that at the polo grounds, really. I mean, you're in the middle of a uh, high-rise apartment complex in, in uh, um, you know, where the polo grounds used to be. And obviously, Candlestick is gone as well. So... I mean, that's really the only one left. Shea Stadium and Seal Stadium. Throw those on the list of yeah. former ballpark. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I remember just thinking the magic of, of going there. And I had I, I, so many trips to New York over the years. I'd never gone uh, way up to, you know, Coogan's Bluff and then down to basically where the, the, the field was laid out. And it's not until you get there that you realize what it was like, what the the, the experience for fans was, you know, coming down those stairs um, and, and, and the way the polo grounds was shaped like a big bathtub. You know, it's, it, it must have been so remarkable. And I, 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 I remember going through some of the, um, like, courtyards in the, the buildings thinking, so maybe the catch would have been right around here, or maybe maybe it would have been another 20 yards that way. I mean, you know, I almost felt like if I could just stand in the same spot, then, like, some magic would hit me mm-hmm. or something. But, uh, yeah, boy, I, I'm putting Birmingham on my list of, of places to go. But, you know, there's so many yeah, other you, little... Yeah, would have thought that, right? I checked in with a fellow named Bill Greeson, who mm-hmm. was a fellow rookie in 48, but he's seven years older than Willie. And he's still going strong well into his 90s. And this guy is a hero three times over, not only as a trailblazing ball player who was the first African-American pitcher on the St. Louis Cardinals, but he fought in Iwo Jima. And he came back and has been a pastor for the past several decades. And... Uh, uh, just an amazing life and just having lunch with him and hanging out with him and visiting his church where he still gives a sermon every Sunday, by the way. And I mean, he goes, he goes back to Birmingham when it was the most segregated city in the country. You know, Martin Luther King said as much. 
and he played before integration was even legal. It wasn't even legalized until 1964 in Birmingham. I mean, this was a place where it was illegal for black people to buy a house in certain areas, illegal, and uh, not not an unwritten rule, a written rule. So, so he played there in the 40s and 50s, and still lives there. And I'm, I'm, I'm it's it, when I talk to him and other people, it's just, it's just, uh, you know, like I'm, it, it's a history book that I'm opening and being able to tell their stories, you know, hopefully in a, in a manner that people can appreciate. Let's pause for a brief word from our sponsor. Our sponsor today, Manscaped, is here to make sure you're well-groomed above and below the belt. Manscaped promotes clean hygiene when it comes to shaving thanks to their lawnmower 3.0. Manscaped is forever changing the grooming game with their Perfect Package 3.0. This third generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to prevent manscaping accidents. Oh dear. Uh, Shaving is about to be nick free thanks to Manscaped's advanced skin safe technology. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code THEATHLETIC. And for a limited time, subscribers get not one, but two free gifts. The Shed Travel Bag, $39 value, and the patented high-performance anti-chafing Manscaped Boxer Briefs. So go to manscaped.com today and use code THEATHLETIC. And so many things that uh, that are unearthed in this book that uh, I didn't know that uh, you have uh, the fact here in the 1951 World Series, Monty Irvin, Willie Mays, and Hank Thompson formed the major's first all-African-American outfield. I didn't know that. Um, you know, they're, 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 especially in the early portions of this book, there's so much about Willie's background that uh, that I didn't know. Um, and, and the other thing is you get into just, you know, his legacy and what he means. And it's so hard to ask someone about their legacy. Uh, oh, yeah. it's, it's so much, so much better to, to hear about what someone means from other people who are important and have their own legacies. And I mean, you've got a couple, uh, former presidents in here. You've got, uh, who, who was the, the biggest get, do you think for this book that, that you were able to talk to? Well, like I said, that, that Charles Einstein, Willie's time, in, inspired me because I, I just always equated, because of that book, Willie to presidents. You know, apple pie, Chevrolet, the U.S. flag, you know, Mr. America, Miss, you know, the Americana. He, he was really the first African-American superstar to showing up a few years after the war and Hank three years after him and just taking baseball to another level. He was so magnetic and People just couldn't, you know, they gravitated. They just couldn't stop. Why he was, he was cheered in every ballpark, even Abbott's Field, even Dodger Stadium. The Giants, how about this stat? Thank you, Bill Arnold. How about this stat? In the 60s, the Giants, who, you know, they, they never really drew great at Candlestick Park. They had the best road attendance in the National League eight out of 10 years in the 60s. And that was because of Mays, obviously. They had great players. But I talked to Felipe Alou and said, no, it was about Mays. And they led again in 1971 when they won the division. And that was Mays' last full season. But when you talk about gets, <laughs> you're talking to George W. Bush for 40 minutes and Bill Clinton for 40 minutes and Hank Aaron for 40 minutes and Pete Rose. And, and <laughs> how about that list, by the way? And, and yeah. I'm even proud to talk to Bill James, you know, and, and 
Rob, Rob Nyer and, and your own Nino Saris, who was fabulous, by the way, in helping put this numbers chapter together. Um, um, Tom Tango, from, you know, from, from StatCast and Major League Baseball. You know, all these uh, number geniuses who kind of helped frame that chapter. And it seemed every chapter had its own, you know, supporting superstar cast of uh, people I spoke with. Uh, not just Mays, but it seemed everybody was accommodating from old Dodgers and Yankees and, and Giants to, to to Mike Trout, who gave me wonderful uh, time. And you know he hates the comparisons like Willie does, but you know he talked he he talked about you know his place in history, which I haven't seen much of. And it was just fascinating when you ask a guy like that to talk about Willie Mays, and he's got. He's got all these stories, you know. He grew up kind of a baseball guy in New Jersey and loved Jeter, but uh, you know his dad loved Mantle, and you know the on and on with the stories. And you know, so he appreciates baseball history because he knows that <laughs> he is part of baseball history. So I mean, it's it's, it's just fabulous stuff. Uh, talking to, to Clinton and Bush and connecting with uh, Obama's people about a separate chapter, but. It's like talking, you know, at a bar over a beer or two, not even thinking that one is a, you know, a president who was far left and maybe the other was a president who was far right. It was just baseball and Willie Mays it was fascinating. Uh, you're describing somebody who's got tremendous range <laughs> in more ways than one. Yeah, yeah, you can cover yeah. all that ground. And by the way, both those guys, both those guys, their favorite all-time player. I mean, there's a reason I talked to these guys. They were the first two baby boomer presidents, both born in the summer of 46. And both were about 10 or 12 when they realized Willie Mays is my favorite player. And to this day, they give me reasons why and all these great anecdotes about the say, hey, kid. So looking back at Willie's time as a player, who was the person do you feel he had the strongest relationship with? Um, Obviously, he's always going to be connected at the hip to Willie McCovey. Um, was there anybody who really stood out where you just reflected on, wow, this person really meant a lot to Willie Mays? I would say no one bigger than Monty Irvin. Yeah. Because when Willie came up and when Willie came up in May of 1951, he was a year removed from high school graduation. So, I mean, he, he had, he had played, you know, most of his professional time in the Negro leagues, which was parts of three seasons. And then he finished the 51 he finished the 50 season in Trenton as the only man of color in the entire league, the only African-American, you know, not only on the Trenton team, but in the, in the full, the full league. And then he gets called up to Minneapolis uh, to begin the 51 season and is hit, hitting 477 <laughs> thinking, Oh man, I'm going to stay here all year. They're, they're not razzing me like they did in Trenton. You know, he was hearing things that Jackie heard when Jackie came up and it was only three years after Jackie and then, you know, 47 to 50. So, 51, he's feeling really comfortable because there are more men of color on the team, more men of color in the league. Plus, he's hitting 477 in Minneapolis, and the, the fans adored him. But the Giants weren't doing well in late May and needed the kid to play some defense, so they called him up. And the whole, the, Horace Stoneham, the, the owner of the Giants, uh, heard so much abuse from citizens in Minneapolis that he took out a, a full-page ad in the newspaper, uh, virtually apologizing for the move and saying, "Hey, we, you know, we gotta, we gotta call this guy up. He can't stay there all year." But, uh, but so anyway, he gets called up, and one of the first guys to meet him is Monty Urban, 
who was about 30 at the time, and Monty Irvin, for those who don't know, could have been Jackie. You know, he, by, you know, many people in the Negro Leagues sort of uh, campaigned for him to be the first. But he went uh, overseas uh, in the Army and came back with some issues physically, emotionally, and it took time for him to adjust. And Branch Rickey said, well, i got to move on. I'm, I'm taking Jackie. So by the time Willie comes up in 51, Monty, who's a god in the Negro Leagues and just a wonderful uh, uh, player for the New York Giants, takes him under his wing and is his roommate on the road and his number one mentor. Leo was a mentor, but he was a manager to all. Monty was like the manager to Willie. And he basically told him, I mean, obviously this is at a time when the Giants went into some cities and Willie and Monty and Thompson and them couldn't stay with the team. They couldn't eat with the team. Um, you know, St. Louis for one. So, so Willie learned from the best. He learned from Monty Irvin. And to this day, he, he stands behind uh, how much Monty meant to him and inspired him and helped him be the person he grew to be. That's tremendous. And, and, and Monty, we, we got to see him in San Francisco, and the Giants would still bring him out for many of their events. And, um, and he was someone else we used to see at the ballpark, not as often as, as, as the Willies, obviously. But, uh, sure. um, you know, the Giants, I think, ha- have done a really, really good job of making sure that their legends were accessible and known and celebrated uh, to people who maybe don't know about the story of, of a Monty Irvin. But uh, moving along to, to one story you've got in the book, uh, probably one of the red-letter days of Willie Mays' career, the day he hit four home runs, and he woke up and he was not feeling so good that day. Do you, uh, you want to tell us the story why? Well, he was up into the night with Willie McCovey, the story goes, and he claims. They were eating ribs. It didn't affect McCovey so much because he played the next day. He was, no issues, but... Mays uh, vomited much of the night. Uh, uh, Doc Bowman, the trainer, had to come in his room and give him some medication. And he woke up the next morning just feeling awful. And this is Willie Mays, who for 13 straight years played 150-plus games. It's a record that probably will never be, uh, you know, nobody will ever come close to that nowadays with so many off days and the matchups they play today. And most of that streak, by the way, during the 154-game season. So Mays was in the lineup every day, double headers throughout spring training, all-star games, give me all nine innings. He just didn't want to come out, and he didn't want you know some kid in the audience to miss him. You know, If he's going to one game, he didn't want to miss Mays, and Mays didn't want to be missed. So he was an entertainer that way. So he wakes up, and, and you know the Giants are off the next day, so he's thinking, okay, I'm going to get two days before we go into Chicago. And you know, on this particular day, they're in Milwaukee playing the Braves, Hank Aaron's team. He's feeling lousy. He's sitting in the dugout. And, and Joey Malfitano, he comes up to him. You know, he's a few years younger than Willie and says, Willie, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm not playing. I'm, I'm sick. I'm not in the lineup. He says, here, use this bat. Willie said, what are you talking about? I'm not playing. He said, no, just use this bat. Joey gave him a, a lighter bat to use. And Willie said, all right, all right. So he goes up there and everything he hits is over the wall. <laughs> you know, he took six or seven or eight swings and just driving everything. So he comes back and tells Alvin Dark, I'm playing. <laughs> so if not for Joey Malfitano, Willie Mays would never have had that four home run game in Milwaukee. And Willie says his fifth at bat, this long line drive to Hank Aaron in center field, was the hardest ball he hit all day. 
And then the game ends with, uh, you know, in the ninth inning, top of the ninth, Jim Davenport makes the last out as the number two hitter, so he leaves Willie Mays on deck, deprives him of another chance to hit a home run. But imagine that, just because of this bat that Joey Malfitano brought to him. As you know, Joey, Joey's such a great storyteller. And Willie obviously provides a lot of storytelling as well to this particular chapter. But man, he just didn't want to come out of games. He wanted to be not only productive, but the durability factor is really unparalleled for center fielders in the history of the game. Now, is there like a postscript to that story where for the rest of his career, he carried like room temperature ribs in his pocket just just <laughs> to, to get the E. coli on them? Just, you know, carry carry a room temperature rib with maybe smelled funny, take a bite, see if it gave him some superpowers like Popeye and spinach? Well, there's funny because there, there's a picture in that particular chap taken in the clubhouse after the game when Willie is addressing reporters. And he's eating ribs. He's holding a rib and eating it <laughs> during this interview about his four home runs. The day after, you know, he had the bad plate of ribs that kept him up all night. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's uh, only Willie Mays. You know, in the bat, by the way, both Mays and Amalfitano thought it was gone because after that game, you know, he brought it to Chicago. They had the off day Monday. Now they're at Wrigley on Tuesday, and Willie breaks the bat. Ooh. <laughs> and uh, told Amalfitano, he said, hey, hey, Louie, he called him Louie. Hey, Louie, bring this to my locker. And Amalfitano brings it up, but he puts it at his own locker, thinking, okay, to make this safe, I'm putting it at my own locker. Well, after the game, it's gone. And uh, both of them, all these years, thought the bat was just picked up by some clubby, you know, thrown a couple screws in it, and then used it, you know, in a, in a backyard wiffle ball game. Never to be seen again. Well, actually located the whereabouts of the bat, and uh, they're both uh, relieved that the bat, you know, has been like in the dungeons of the Hall of Fame all these years because because the Giants traveling secretary after that game actually notified the Hall of Fame. There was some communication, and it was it was sent to Cooperstown without those guys knowing about it. So the Hall of Fame has Willie's two biggest mementos: the uh, the bat he used for the four home runs and the glove he used for the famous catch. I thought that story was going to end with the bat being in the shed, like somehow Kirk yeah. Reeder had it. <laughs> now, we're, it's, just pivot real quick to a segment I like to call Tell Grant How He's Wrong. And by this, I mean, I'm ranking home runs currently, and I have such a recency bias. I, I just, I know I'm screwing this up, something fierce. And I want to know... Your top Willie Mays home runs. Give me, like, if you had to narrow it down to five, his five biggest, uh, and you can include the four home run game as, like, one home run. But give me your five Willie Mays home runs. Hmm. Well, I would have to say number one. Well, you know what? The one he talks about, first of all, I'll I'll start there, is one that surpassed Mel Ott for not only the Giants' all-time lead in home runs, but the National League all-time lead in home runs. 512, Ott had 511, the great Mel Ott. Uh, the only man, by the way, who has 500 plus home runs and was shorter than Willie. You know, Willie listed at 510, 170, 180. And when I used to write 510, by the way, he, he, he said, he said, John, I'm 511. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> Sorry, baseball reference. I'm going with 511. Um, yeah, I, so that I would, I would, I mean, it was a big deal back then that, uh, you know, Mays led the entire National League um, in the history of the game in home runs. You know, only Babe Ruth had more. So, obviously, the Spawn home run in the 16th inning uh, at Candlestick Park 
that gave Marichal a one nothing win. That was incredible. Uh, basically bailing out his teammate because Marichal came up to him knowing that Willie was the number two hitter in the bottom of the 16th and said, hey, Willie, Alvin Dark's taking me out, man. you got to help me. <laughs> he said, Willie said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Then he hits a home run and he tells me all these years later, said, I, I, yeah, I said that, but I didn't know I was going to hit a damn home run. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, he's, it was so windy that night and McCovey hit a, a ball that he thought should have been the walk-off homer in the ninth to make it one nothing. But the wind just carried a foul according to the umpires, but every giant you know, maintains that it was it would have and should have been fair. But luckily, they called a foul to create momentum for the uh, 16th. And that's when Mays, instead of hitting a, a ball high, he said that the ball, you know, just the wind would have just taken it back or blown it foul. He had to hit a line drive down the line to get it out in left field. You know, he mostly used that jet, jet stream at Candlestick to go to right center. But, you know, maybe the biggest game was game 162 in 1962. He hit a he hit a uh, home run that broke a one one tie in the eighth inning against the Houston Colt forty fives by the way and you know then they all you know famously hung out in the clubhouse listening to transistor radios waiting for the Dodgers to lose to St Louis one nothing and that's when you know because of Mays' home run they finished in in a in a one hundred sixty two game tie and then pushed a you know best of three series with the Dodgers Mays by the way hit two home runs in that first game it was a blowout for San Francisco one of them was off Koufax and then Mays had an infield single that ignited a rally in Game Three that got him into the World Series so. So that one, uh, you know, obviously number four in Milwaukee, the the one that gave him for it, the 16-inning home run, the Mel Ott home run, and um, is that five? Well, I think you you said the ones that I've covered, so uh, good job. That that didn't make me look as much of an idiot as I thought, so I I really appreciate your contribution. (laughs) Oh, oh, I got one more. His first home run as a Met. His first home run with the Mets came in his first game against the Mets, and it was against the Giants. And he said it it was so emotional that... He spent like five minutes uh, talking to the first baseman, five minutes talking to the second baseman, five minutes talking to the shortstop, five minutes talking to the third baseman, and then he finally scored. Because <laughs> he had just got traded from San Francisco to New York, and the first thing he does is hit a home run against his old team. So John Grant has been uh, spending the last month pretty much researching the top uh, 50 home runs in San Francisco Giants history. So I think he's he's breathing a sigh of relief that uh, you didn't bring up one that, that – uh, was off his radar screen, and, and and one he hit for the Mets obviously doesn't count. So, uh, in in this project. Well, one but, other uh, thing, you know, he I think he opened the '62 season in the first inning with the home run, and in 1971, at age 40, he homered in his first four games. Wow. So, yeah. But that's what's amazing is I mean, 660 home runs, but I mean, I just don't associate Willie Mays with being a home run hitter. You know, there, because there's so many other. Parts of his game were just so transcendent, and and I I, I know have, having gone to Cooperstown, the one thing that I just sat sort of with my um, proverbial you know fist under my chin, just staring at in awe and couldn't take my eyes off was the the glove that he used to make the catch. And I was there in December, and there was like ten people in the museum, and people would sort of file by and they'd look and keep walking, and I just want to grab them by like the lapel of their jacket and say, <laughs> "No, that is the catch. That is the glove right there. You got to stay here and admire that." Um, so that was just. Uh, I, I, I still can sort of picture it in my mind. But um, uh, anyway, now, now that this book is, is coming out uh, this week, right, um, can you tell us, uh, one, what has Willie's reaction been to it? And, uh, and, and two, uh, where can people get it and, uh, and give us all the details about it? 
Well, yeah, you could get it anywhere. Uh, you know, I'd advise, first of all, to go to your independent bookstore, your local bookstore. It's funny because you order on Amazon, you probably don't have it yet. I have a cousin who lives in Sonoma who ordered it at her local independent bookstore, and she got it a week ago. Wow. So, yeah, I don't know how that happened. She got it before I did. And, <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, it's pretty much anywhere. In fact, uh, Target bought a whole bunch of them, and they're still open. So May 12th, and Willie's reaction is as positive as it's been. I don't know if you saw on social media, but his birthday was yesterday. Yeah. He was brought a cake by the fella and friend who brings a cake to him every year, a guy named Danny Murphy. And this particular cake was the book cover for his book. So I'm, I'm looking, I said, no, no, that, someone sent out a picture. I said, no, that's, that's, they must have just, you know, printed a picture and just put it on, put on an old cake. And then next picture I see has a slice out of it with chocolate and strawberry and everything. I said, what the heck? Thing was yeah. Gorgeous. So Willie's birthday cake was the cover to 24. Yeah, I, I'm looking at it. Dennis O'Donnell from KPIX uh, tweeted it, and I retweeted it, and he's even got the details that he's told it's uh, sponge cake with strawberry filling and chocolate used to design the top. Home run. That looks pretty darn good. Yeah, that looks like a tasty cake. So <laughs> y- you might want to dig into the book, and if you happen to be at Willie's house, you can dig into the, the cake as well. Den- Why does Dennis O'Donnell get all the scoops? I don't know, but he does. So he, he's in the know. He's in the know. Well, hey, John, this has been a real treat uh, for you to join us, and, and we really appreciate it. And uh, you talk about how lucky you feel that Willie has allowed you into his sort of circle of trust to be able to tell these stories. And But I think that, that we're, all, we're all lucky that uh, we get access to uh, all of these stories from uh, Willie's life and, and, and told in such an inspiring way uh, uh, through you. So... Thanks for, for doing this, and, and, and thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Wow, yeah. Thanks, Andy. Grant, my pleasure. This has been Episode 66 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. Thanks so much to John Shea for coming by and sharing his stories on, on what it was like to, to write a definitive Willie Mays book. I can't wait. Um, we will be back on Monday with more Bags and Brisby Giants content. Thanks so much for listening.